It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judah, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. Lord, are you... No, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and now you are clean, though not every one of you are clean. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their masters, nor are messengers greater than the ones who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you, now before it happens, so that when it does, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciples and asked him, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, is it it? Is it? Who is it? (laughs) Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread in the dish, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what 
was needed for the festival, or give to some, or give to, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, "Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, and will glorify Him at once." Thank you, girls. Appreciate that. It's a long passage, but it's part, a short part, of a sermon. Last week we spent a little time with this sermon, just an intro. We spent some time in the upper room of our own making. We had a communion service with a foot washing between Sabbath school and church, and we partook of the elements body and blood, bread and wine. It is always a meaning-laden and meaningful time. And yet so much of that experience is shaped out of John 13. Usually we pay just attention to a few brief segments of this passage. Today I want to highlight a few other things just kind of to help us with our overall understanding of this passage. I've been teaching oh, for a couple months now, Saturday mornings, Tuesdays and Wednesdays night, nights when I can, and uh, telling my students as, as I've gone through that I hope they'll memorize certain things, but one of the things that I hope they'll read is John 13 to 17. It's so rich. It's so complex. It's so powerful. And after telling them this multiple times, I finally decided that I had never preached on it fully, and it might be time for a short series. So, uh, thus we begin. From the very introduction of John 13, you have some very uh, poignant things that are said as we ramp up to the words of Christ himself. It's just before the Passover festival. Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem against the advice of his apostles. He knows that the hour is near. He knows that it's about time. And he senses that his journey to the Father is coming soon. He can sense the impending doom. He knows that this run he has had with his ministry is about to come to an end. He's made enough people angry. He said enough controversial things. He's escaped death once or more already. And now the time is very near. And I love what the narrator says in verse uh, 1 here at the last half. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. From this passage until we get to the crucifixion in John 18, we hear the story of how he loved them to the end. The narrator is setting us up. Everything that will follow will be about Jesus having loved his own who were in the world. That's the disciples at the time, his followers at the time, and in the present tense, all of us who have believed. He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, it says. 
and a reference is made. A reference that's going to come up several different ways in John 13. A reference to the devil. Now we're, uh, it's, it's kind of passe to say the devil made me do it. Well, we're all a bit past that, I hope. But in John 13, we do read that the devil had prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, we're going to get back to that because the story of Judas is embedded in this. But what kind of prompting might that have been, do you think? I don't know. I, I can never tell. I can when I read uh, of this passage, passages in Ellen White on this subject, when I read the biblical evidence, I, I can never really tell what Simon Judas Iscariot is thinking, actually. I, I'm, I'm wanting to believe that he was somehow hoping to force Jesus' hand, that by having him arrested and betraying him in this manner, he would resist, reveal himself to be the Messiah who would save them from the Romans and Roman oppression, that he would demonstrate somehow his glory as the soldiers came to arrest him or as the Sanhedrin uh, had their way? I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing it's just about the money because at the end of the story when Jesus is dead, he returns the money and he kills himself. Clearly distraught. Something's going on. Something's gone awry. But the idea of betraying the Son of Man was not God's idea. It was not what God had in mind. It was the prompting of the devil. Now there is uh, textual evidence, depending on the version you're reading, as to whether this was ordained or Judas was somehow predestined to do this. That's another topic, a huge one. But we read here that the devil had prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And now our narrator takes us in verse 3 to a very, very comforting place. All of this is happening. Jesus is going up to the festival. He knows his time is near. He knows he's about to die. And he knows that the one he's dining with is going to betray him. All of which one would think would be frightening, scary, horrible things. And in the middle of this, we hear this thought. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. Friends, what's about to unfold isn't a matter of lack of power on Jesus' part. Not only that, he knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. Talk about confidence. Do you know where you're from and where you're going? This powerfully embedded sense of identity and purpose would give Jesus the strength to do what he did, would give him the wisdom to shape his remaining hours in the way that he did, would give him the words to share with his disciples that are recorded so beautifully in John 13 and following. It's in this context that everyone realizes the goyim has not been hired. Now, a goyim is a non-Jewish person who serves. I think you've heard me tell stories of being a Sabbath goyim in my neighborhood, my old neighborhood years ago, on many occasions myself, in which on a Shabbat I might be taking a walk and might encounter a faithful uh, child of Abraham who would say to me, are you Jewish? And I would say no. And he would say, are you sure? And I would say no, yes. And he would say, are you really sure? 
And I would say last I checked. Because they didn't want to ask of me if I were a child of Abraham. They would only ask of me if I weren't. And then the problem would unfold. My wife has left, my child has left the light on in our bedroom and we can't sleep. Or would you turn the air conditioner on for me? It's becoming really hot. And so I got to see the inside of a lot of Orthodox Jewish homes being the Sabbath goyim that I got to be. And it was a privilege. I, I, I don't begrudge them this at all. I just found it culturally very interesting. The goyim had not been hired. There was no one to serve the disciples. And all of the preparations they had made for space and room and for Jesus to ride the donkey into Jerusalem and all these other things that we read out in the, in the Gospels related to John... We don't see preparation for the Sabbath for this uh, festival Goyim, who would also be a Sabbath Goyim, by the way, because any festival was a Sabbath, not the Sabbath, but a Sabbath. And so Jesus looks around the room and knows the truth just as the disciples do. There's no one to wash feet. I won't belabor this point, but it was a necessity if hospitality were to be practiced in the way that it was in the day, with people reclined around a table, foot to head, and with the kind of material that was in the streets in which people walked and the type of footwear they wore, it was a necessity and not a pleasant one. Jesus strips his clothing off, puts a towel around his waist, according to the text, and he begins pouring water into a basin and washing the disciples' feet, drying them with the same towel that's on his waist. We do a variation of this. We don't gird our loins with a towel. We have nice sanitary hand towels from Costco that we wash with bleach every time. But Jesus is taking this as a servant would. It's personal. He comes to Simon Peter, a powerful figure among the disciples even then, blustery at this point, more than powerful. And says, Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus doesn't give the yes or no answer. He simply says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Have you ever had a parent say that to you? Is there anything you hate more? It's, uh, it's try me, right? See if I can't understand. And of course we can't, can we? Our parents do know. Now you don't understand, but one day you will. And so Peter reveals his lack of understanding. No, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So anxious to take control of the situation in typical Peter fashion, in his usual blustery way, he goes to the grand gesture and says, fine, wash my feet and wash my hands and head too. And Jesus says, no, it's not how it works. If you've had a bath, you're clean. You only need to have your feet washed. What did he mean? If you've had a bath? I mean, it could be literal, right? If you've taken a bath and you've just walked from one place to another in this context, it would only be your feet that are dirty. You really don't need everything attended to. 
But beyond the literal meaning, it could mean something else too. If you're spiritually clean, if you've taken that plunge in the baptistry, if you've entered the mikvah and come out a new person, do you really need to be washed head to toe? No. Only your feet. It's a small cleansing. It's a reminder of a bigger cleansing. It's a small bath to a big bath. He knew, and he says, and you are clean, Peter, though not every one of you. For he knew it was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. Now, we know where this story goes. We know that in the chapters to follow, Peter is going to deny his Lord three times, and we know that at the end of John, Peter is going to ask, Jesus is going to ask Peter to reaffirm him three times. We know where the story goes. And it's hard to imagine, knowing what's coming, that Peter's deemed cleaned at this moment, but I think it's an interesting thing. Jesus finishes washing the feet, puts on his regular clothes, and returned to his place, and then he asks this important question. Do you understand what I've done for you? You know who I am. You call me teacher and Lord, and that's exactly what I am. But if I, your teacher and Lord, will play the role of Goyim and be your servant, you're not above that either. And I would expect you to do that, to serve one another in love in the way that I have served you. For servants aren't greater than their masters, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now, I know it doesn't seem like an important phrase, but just put a little note by that. Circle the word sent or something, because the word sent is very important in John. Jesus is beginning to say something here that will unfold not only through these pericopes we're going to study, these sections of scripture we're going to study together, but you'll see this over and over again. The one sent. Messengers are not greater than the ones who sent, one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Who are the messengers Jesus is referring to? You're either quiet or not sure. Two possible meanings here, I would suggest. One, of course, is that when Jesus sent the disciples ahead to make arrangements or sent them to do anything, for example, to ask for the the foal that he wrote on, that would be them acting as messengers or servants, you see. And it's two ways of saying the same thing. More likely, I think, messengers refers to angels. Angels are referred all through scriptures to as messengers. And it makes for a very interesting read if we take it that way. It reframes the context just a bit. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm always amazed how we let the fact that we think our feet are ugly or that we've got a toenail with some fungus on it or that we didn't get a pedicure, or that we're, uh, our, nail, our toenail polish is chipping, or that we're shy, I'm always amazed that we let that keep us from engaging what Jesus modeled so beautifully. A symbolic serving of one another in love. And so next time we have communion, I'm looking forward to starting church really late because everybody has showed up 
and everybody is participating in foot washing. Odd as that seems. And as anachronistic as that is. So just, just so you can sort of plan ahead, be thinking that way. Somewhere around New Year's, get a pedicure. Get, get everything. We will be doing a foot washing again. And it'll be a joy to share that with our brothers and sisters. Doing what Jesus has commanded us to do. Modeling it after him. Jesus comes back now to the subject of his betrayal. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared his bread, my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Where have we heard that phrase before? Lifted up his heel? We heard it in Genesis, didn't we? So Jesus is starting to reveal something great even as he speaks in this moment. The prophecy was given. Turn with me back to Genesis Early chapters 3. In Genesis 3, there's a curse being spoken. Verse 15. Speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we've heard this passage, this prophecy before. Jesus is alluding to something that everybody knows. He's talking about something familiar. A prophecy is making its tangential appearance here. There's something going on. Coming back to the betrayal, he's lifted his heel against me. The devil has lifted up his heel to crush me, Jesus says. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that what? I am who I am. Is that familiar? Should be. Let's go to Exodus. In Exodus 3, verse 13, we read this. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. So they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? We already picked up on sent and now we have I am. And not just I am, but he says that you will believe that I am who I am. The God speaking to these disciples is the one who spoke in burning bush. The God speaking these words to the disciples is the one who made himself plain to the greatest, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, Moses. The God who sent Moses is the one who was sent as well in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful reference. It's a blasphemous reference depending on your your perspective 
And Jesus says in verse 20, very, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Was that not true of Moses? Had Pharaoh listened and let God's people go, would there have been a single plague? No. Would there have been a single issue in the land? No. There wouldn't have been a problem. Tell them, I am that I am sent you. The disciples are probably speechless. Verse 21 tells us after Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit and testified. I love this passage because it tells me that through all of this, knowing that he was sent from God and would, would return to God, knowing all that it says at the beginning of this chapter, having loved his own and loved them to at the end, and knowing that the Father had put all things under his power, even despite this, Jesus is now troubled in spirit. He testifies, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. There's something deep and hurtful about betrayal. Something that even if anticipated catches us in our gut. Something tearing about it. Something deeply troubling about it. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of our book, John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. The deal was done. Satan had prompted him. Judas had listened. And as soon as he took the bread, as soon as he partook of this symbol of deliverance, the symbol of grace, the symbol of mercy, Satan entered him. It may be what Paul refers to when he says not taking the feast in an unworthy manner. Although the context would suggest people were showing up late, showing up drunk, and eating ahead of everybody else. We don't have that problem with anything here, at least as far as the drunk part goes. Maybe a little with potluck some days, there's a bit of a stampede. But um, having said so, we'll see how everything goes today. Jesus told him, do what you're about to do quickly. No one at the, mill understood, at the meal understood this, though. Judas had charge of the money, and some thought he was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or give something to the poor or something. They basically paid no attention. As soon as Jesus, uh, Judas had taken the bread, he went out. His was not... Uh, partaking of bread to enter in. It was, was not a taking of bread in anticipation yet of what God would yet do. He took it and he went out. 
It was an empty peace. And I love what the author of John says next. And it was night. What is night a symbol of? Darkness. What is darkness a symbol of in this context? Foreboding, loss, evil. Something something has happened here. The author throws this in because it's a literary clue to us to help us understand. It's a visual piece. Not only has Satan entered him, not only is he taking this, this bread, this symbol, not only has he been identified as the betrayer, not only has Satan prompted this, not only has Satan entered him, but now darkness. Judas is now in darkness, lost for the choice that he's made. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. We've all heard that passage, If I be lifted up. In what is to come will be the glory of God, an anathema to the Greeks, stumbling block to the Greeks, excuse me, an anathema to the Jews. What is coming up is going to be the focal point of the salvation story, the one sent will give himself up, the one sent will die. The one sent will rise again and return to the Father. What's coming is a moment of shame and agony so great that we can't comprehend it. And out of shame and agony so profound will be the birth of something so spiritually alive that we celebrate it to this day something so spiritually vital that we cling to its power today, something so symbolically important that not only will we wash feet, but we'll take a part of the body and a part of the blood, symbolically. We'll partake of the symbols of his passing, of his sacrifice, of his gift, The Son of Man will be glorified. And now something begins in this very end of this section that will pick up again and again as we get into 14, 15, 16. If God is glorified in the one who suffers, in the one who will be lifted up on this cross, in this one who will die, then God will glorify the Son in himself. And he will glorify him at once. I read this to mean that even in this moment of intense trouble and horrible anticipation, even in the moments of suffering to come, God is not defeated. In the suffering one, God is glorified. 
and in turn the suffering one is glorified in the life and heart of God. And something will come of this suffering. There'll be something gained. In this moment, God will glorify him even at once. Now, my notes say that the earliest of manuscripts don't have the last phrase. Or the phrase, if God is glorified in him. It says, in the earliest manuscripts, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Whatever was originally written there, something incredible is happening and it's going to continue to unfold. Jesus is going to continue to talk. He's going to continue to slowly reveal here at the very last hours of his ministry who he is, what he's about, why he's come, and what he hopes, and what he's promised I mean, in just a few short verses, I'll give you a preview. In just a few short verses, Jesus is going to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has plenty of room, and you know this passage. In just a few minutes, he's going to point to a victory that's so far away. I hope you'll join us next week and in the weeks to come as we unpack 14, 15, and 16. Because there's a wealth there too. As for today, let's marvel in the revelation that the I am that I am, the ground of all of our being, wrapped a towel around his waist and served and ate with one who would betray him and blessed his disciples and comforted them. And though troubled in spirit, was honest enough to tell them what was coming in this very last hour of his life. this point as we have received I would invite the deacons to collect our offering that indeed we might glorify God in our giving in addition to our singing and reading and speaking and praise and so Lord may we ever be faithful to this truth that we've found this I am that I am revealed in flesh this grace that has come to all of us And so to that end, keep us faithful. Jesus' name, amen.